Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I'm Martin Strong in for Roy Green this weekend. There is an affordability crisis in Canada when it comes to finding a place to live. Uh, and after a cooling of the real estate market because of higher interest rates and a bunch of other things, sales seem to be even bouncing back a bit. Judging by the March numbers, uh, especially in the big cities, real estate is holding steady. So much for any relief for those trying to get into the market for the first time, and especially those trying to find a place to rent. So what's the answer? That's a big question, but one person believes he has a great solution for some, and he's hoping it will soon become available to more people, and that's co-op housing. Tim Ross is executive director of the Cooperative Housing Federation of Canada, also known as the CHF, and Tim Ross is with us. Thanks, Tim, for being here. Hey, Martin. Uh, thanks for the invitation to be here. And co-op housing, it's one of those things that I've known about for a really long time. Uh, I know people who live in co-op housing, but I think, like a lot of people, if I was pressed, I'm not sure I could really explain it. So let's start by you defining co-op housing, what it is, how does it work? Oh, that's a great uh, way to start. So a lot of people in Canada know that you can uh, rent or you can buy. You can rent a home or you can buy a home. Uh, but uh, that's becoming increasingly a challenge for uh, for a lot of folks. Um, the experience of renting uh, is uh, really uh, more and more unstable due to a lack of choice and affordability and a lack of security of tenure. And, uh, you know, if you're trying to if you're a first time home buyer, the, the cost of uh, entering the market is increasingly out of reach. So we like to uh, 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 highlight the fact that there is a third option in Canada, and that's living in cooperative housing, uh, where uh, you become uh, a member. Uh, as a member, you are uh, a joint owner in the cooperative. You pay uh, housing charges on a monthly basis. Um, you follow some uh, bylaws. And uh, you have uh, the uh, the right of occupancy, a very uh, stable uh, form of housing uh, with great connections to uh, neighbors and community. So really, co-op housing is uh, uh, looks a lot like renting. Um, it can feel like owning in terms of the choice uh, of housing typologies. Uh, and uh, uh, but it's uh, it's a lot more attainable and it's a lot more stable than what's being experienced on the renting and home ownership market uh, right now in Canada. So are you building up equity as you live in the co-op ho house, the home? Or when you leave, do you leave with some equity in that? There's a couple forms of cooperative housing in Canada. The, the majority of housing co-ops in Canada and the co-ops that my association represents 
are not for profit continuing housing cooperatives. So the uh, uh, you, uh, you the, the the price you pay to enter the housing cooperative um, is is very nominal. Um, you you do not build up equity in uh, as you live in the housing cooperative, but the benefit you do have is you have a form of housing that's a lot more affordable than renting or owning on the market. You have great greater security of tenure compared to what you might experience uh, on the on the renters market. Right. And you've got a, you've got a really uh, you've got a really great community too, a really great and supportive community as well. You actually know your neighbors, and uh, you can support one another. Um, so you get these benefits. What you what you don't necessarily get is uh, uh, is uh, any any accrual of equity uh, in uh, in in uh, co-op housing. The cost of entry is very low. Uh, you've got these other benefits, and you also don't have all the other headaches of home ownership uh, um, because uh, the uh, the maintenance and property management is uh, often uh, professionally done and, and and hired by the cooperative itself. And do the do the rents increase at a at a certain level, and uh, do, does it just kind of go along with inflation? Well, actually, that's a really interesting question. Um, the uh, we recently did a study on the cost of living in a co-op home in Canada uh, across several Canadian cities. And what we found was that the um, the cost of living increases in terms of what it costs to live in a housing cooperative, um, it rises much more slowly compared to uh, market rental housing, comparably aged market rental housing. So over a, um, uh, it, it was... Uh, uh, and, and, and the co-op housing is more affordable than comparably aged private rental housing buildings. So, um, so today on average, uh, in this study group that we, uh, that we, uh, that we looked at, the cost of living in a co-op home is about 400 to $500 less per month on average, uh, across these cities. So you add that up over a year. That's a, that's a good amount of savings for households. If you can afford to save that in the first place, mm-hmm. and a lot of people unfortunately uh, uh, can't, uh, they they don't have that income or that stability in their lives. So, so this makes a lot. This makes a big difference, and it's a much more accessible form of housing. Okay, well, you've sold me. So now I want to find a, a co-op rental uh, in whatever city I'm in in Canada. What's the process? Is there are there long waiting lists? That is the downside uh, currently, Martin. The uh, uh, co-ops are a pretty small part mm-hmm. of the Canadian housing market, uh, actually less than 1% of the Canadian housing market. Though uh, in, in most cities, you do find some uh, some housing co-ops. Uh, some In some cities have a lot more housing co-ops. Uh, um, because they're such an affordable and, and stable and community-connected way of living, um, People move in and, and, and often it meets their needs for their whole lives. Um, uh, so we don't see a whole lot of turnover or vacancy in the existing, uh, in the existing portfolio of housing co-ops in Canada. Wait lists are pretty long. Um, uh, but, uh, but, uh, um, we, that, uh, it's, it, it's, uh, still possible to move into a co-op. There are vacancies. Um, you, you, uh, you can go on our website to actually look up 
where co-ops are all across the country. Um, and uh, and uh, co-ops market their vacancies just like um, other um, just like other uh, apartments or or homes. They they often use sites like uh, Marketplace or Kijiji or or other places to market their vacancies. Right. So, are there waiting lists? Is it a good idea to to go to the uh, Co-op Housing Federation of Canada website and start uh, signing up for waiting lists? You can you can go on our website and you can see where co-ops are located, so you know them by name, and 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 you can look up those co-ops to see if they have any vacancies. Um, but uh, a lot of co-ops they uh, they've closed their waiting list because uh, because um, they're uh, the the wait is just so long. In some cases, it can be uh, five, even uh, I've seen up to ten years. Um, so some co-ops are keeping their waiting list open. What we really need to do is uh, maybe stop. Um, uh, you know, the, the conversation about wait lists is really important, but the question is, well, why don't we have more housing cooperatives and how can we build more housing cooperatives in Canada? Mm. Um, that is the best way to address the wait list that we see in, in housing cooperatives today. And, uh, uh, for that, we really need to look at a broader policy response in terms of, of um, uh, making sure that there's more uh, co-op housing in Canada and more affordability and choice in the in the market, whether you're looking to rent or own a home, the situation right now in Canada is really becoming quite untenable. Yeah, and we just had the national budget, and uh, it was all about uh, housing and making housing affordable for Canadians and available for Canadians. Are you happy with what was in that when it comes to co-op housing? Well, I'm actually quite concerned about this, uh, the, this recent budget. Uh, for a budget that's really focused on cost of living issues, it really missed the mark on addressing the biggest line item in everybody's household budget. And, it, and that's the cost of, uh, of, of paying for your housing. Um, the, the narrative in the budget did a great job of diagnosing the, the problem. But the measures in the budget really don't go far enough to tackle the issues. Uh, and this was quite disappointing because we have seen successive federal budgets over the last few years um, invest more robustly in uh, affordable housing and recognizing housing as a national issue and a national crisis that requires uh, a significant attention. But this uh, this budget actually didn't go very far on um, on housing measures. Tim, I want to talk to you about the lifestyle that comes with co-op housing. You you kind of touched on it that it, it was very community based. And one thing I'm I'm really interested in are new ideas for uh, living, especially older Canadians and. Uh, and there, there are more cooperative, uh, community-based sort of uh, environments where people are sharing houses who aren't in the same family. And uh, what do you see as the future of community living as it connects to co-op housing? Oh, well, hey, that's a great question too. The the uh, uh, the reality is the cost of social isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter your demographic, but particularly among aging Canadians, the cost of social isolation is really high. Um, social, social isolation leads to, um, really, uh, worse health outcomes. And, uh, and this can be mitigated by, uh, really concentrating on better forms of housing and building more intentional communities. And this is something that co-op housing does. Uh, very well. In, in a co-op, you're not, um, 
you're not a tenant. Um, you're a member. Uh, you're a member owner of the cooperative, uh, of the cooperative. And, uh, you need to, to, to work with your community. You need to work with your, uh, your neighbors to, uh, make sure that you're electing a really strong board of directors to oversee, uh, the, uh, uh, the administration of the cooperative. Um, and, uh, co-ops also create lots of really great informal social networks. We, we found during the pandemic that, uh, members were, um, uh, were there for each other. Um, helping seniors, uh, get, uh, uh, make sure that they were getting the groceries that they needed when grocery store lineups were, uh, winding around the block, uh, um, that there was a childcare in place for essential workers so that they could go and continue to their, to do their job as childcare options were, uh, childcare spaces were closed. Co-ops really rallied and, uh, neighbors, um, really look after each other in housing cooperatives. And, uh, that makes it a great option for, uh, for aging Canadians because, uh, it really does mitigate the, uh, that risk of social isolation, which has really, um, uh, really costly and devastating health outcomes. Yeah. And I think that's one of the issues that's so important, but kind of gets lost in the conversation because everybody's talking about how unaffordable it is. So that's mm-hmm. obviously the big elephant in the room, but it's, it's the conditions that people are living in the social isolation. And I guess this could, can help that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, the, the cost of living situation and the high cost of housing is certainly what catches people's attention and brings people to, uh, to cooperative housing, but people stay because of the security of tenure. So the stability that co-ops have to offer, um, and the community as well. Um, and, uh, so, so it's really a well-rounded housing option in that it includes three of those really essential, um, uh, it meets three really essential needs that, that many people are struggling to find. Can I find a place that's affordable enough for me? Uh, can I, uh, is it going to be stable? Um, can I live, can I put down roots here? Um, am I at risk of being renovicted or demovicted or, um, or, or having a change of ownership in this place that I'm renting? Um, no, you, you, co-ops are very stable. You have really strong security of tenure. And then you also have the community aspect of, as well of, uh, of, uh, neighbors supporting neighbors and uh, working together to make, uh, the co-op the best community possible. How long have housing co-ops been in Canada? I, I'm just guessing, I'm, I could be wrong on this, that it's, it's a concept that was invented in somewhere in Europe or something, but, um, where was it invented, the, the concept and how long has it been in Canada? Well, I would say the principles and value of cooperation are pretty fundamental to human society. And these values exist, uh, across, uh, across many worldviews, cultures and traditions. Uh, so I wouldn't want to ascribe, uh, the, uh, invention of, uh, cooperative business to, uh, one place or one culture or one time. Uh, but, but in terms of the, uh, uh, housing cooperatives in Canada, um, uh, uh, a lot of cooperatives started as, as builder cooperatives. You have the, uh, uh, the Anna Ganesh movement in, in Nova Scotia, uh, and, uh, the student cooperatives, 
um, going back, uh, you know, well over a uh, hundred years. Um, and, and then more recently, um, we saw the emergence and a big boom around multi-unit, uh, multi-unit residential family cooperatives. And, and, uh, these were really, um, uh, started, um, uh, by the grassroots, um, by, uh, by grassroots activists. Uh, but then really became more popular and scaled up as a policy response in the 70s and 80s when the federal government made dedicated long-term investments to creating co-op and community housing supply. Unfortunately, these programs were cut uh, uh, in the uh, late 80s and then, and then ended altogether in the early 90s. So, um, and maybe we wouldn't have the housing crisis today that we do if the federal government uh, had continued to invest in community and cooperative housing. This past Friday, workers at the Canada Revenue Agency voted in favor of a strike ahead of mediation that takes place later this month. Uh, the union wants a pay increase. They want more flexibility on remote work and improved job security and work-life balance. They haven't had a collective bargaining agreement for two and a half years. So if this happens, it could uh, have a big effect on a lot of things, such as your tax refund, uh, certain services like benefit payments. According to Canada.ca, the website, they say benefit payments would be prioritized. The Canada child benefit would continue during any labor disruption. But uh, there are still a lot of questions. Kelsey Campbell is the executive producer of this show. And she's with me now to talk about uh, taxes in general uh, and the you know general tax situation. Hi, Kelsey. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Martin. Happy Easter. Yeah, happy Easter to you too. It's not the it's not the weekend you want to think about your taxes, but I guess it's coming up. Are you one of those people who gets their taxes done really early? Yeah, so this is what I'm thinking about. You reach um, March, you reach spring, things are greening up, the sun is coming out, we're not seeing so many temperatures in the minus, and then yet it's just an anxiety-induced season because <laughs> we always have that tax deadline looming our heads. And for me, I just can't believe, like, every year I'm like, okay, as soon as the tax documents pop up, it's usually kind of end of February, I'm like, I'm going to get this done for, like, March 15th, so it's just done and out of mind. And then April 30th always starts creeping up, and it's just panic, panic, panic. So last weekend, I pulled two all-nighters nice. and filled, I'm, I'm a big Excel spreadsheet girl, and but I have a rental and I have work from home expenses and I try to detail everything and collect, go around my car and all in my house and all of the pockets of my jackets and pull out receipts and go back and try to figure out everything I need to claim. And every year at this time, I'm like, okay, never again. I'm going to just keep my spreadsheet updated month to month or like every day when I come home, if I've got expenses to add, I'm just going to put it in the spreadsheet and I'll find myself right back here making this promise to myself next April. That is hilarious because that is exactly what I do. Every year I th- I say, I'm going to do, I'm going to be really, I get everything in order and I never do. And, and now taxes are way more complicated than they were even three years ago because so many people are working from home and then all of a sudden they have all these uh, different deductions. So do you, you do your own taxes? 
I prepare my own taxes. I get all of my spreadsheets in order and then I do use an accountant and, and getting the right accountant, if it's more complicated than a single T4, not a lot of people are lucky enough to just have one T4 and, and be able to go onto the CRA website themselves, file, easy, boom, get your return or make your payment. Um, but I would say having the right accountant that's willing to find every drop of blood out of a stone um, has been a game changer for me. And every year I'm like, what am I missing? What more should I be thinking about? And every year he blows my mind and reminds me of something that I've overlooked. Yeah. Um, but again, this is when like I feel for accountants, they're pulling all nighters. They're working seven days a week yeah. because ev- and like that last minute, everyone's getting in and then you're annoyed with them. If you're getting it, you know, your all of your details and your T4s and other forms to them on April 28th. And they're like, uh, I don't know when I'm going to be able to get this in. Then it's like, come on, man, there's a deadline in two days. You got to do it. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is an interesting thing. I, I would never do my own taxes, but the act of getting everything to together is a chore enough. And that feels like I'm doing my taxes. But do you know that about a quarter of Canadians prepare their own tax returns? And of those uh, 25% that do their own tax returns, 27% actually say they enjoy doing their taxes. I think when you know you're going to get a refund, it's a thrill. I, I like I like the feeling of organization once I get it all together, and that's why like right now I'm I'm pretty excited. I've, I'm completely up to date for my 2023 taxes now in my in my spreadsheet. But like, give me two months, or we're into summertime. That's going to go by the wayside. And like I said, I'm, I'm going to be behind. Okay. One, one of the th- one of the things that you just said about the CRA negotiations that I really jumped out at me is that they're seeking job security, and I'm just wondering if there is. Another job that is more secure <laughs> than working in the tax industry. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, what they what do they say? Death and taxes. Yeah, because yeah, next year, yeah, they're 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 going to decide that Canadians don't need to file taxes anymore, so oh, yeah. we're going to lose we're going to lose <laughs> all the staff in the CRA. I don't I don't see that happening. Yeah, that's a good point, and and the whole idea of your tax uh, refund being delayed, to me, I mean, that's a sacred thing, your tax refund, because we have this sort of agreement with the government that they can take our money in advance off our paychecks, most people, uh, in advance, the tax money, and we'll give that to them, but we get our tax refund when we do our taxes. And if that's delayed, I think that's going to cause a lot of unhappy people. It's stressful and it is something that I, I really do bank on. Like I budget in that tax refund. That's what's going to pay for my property taxes and I pay annually with, for my, my car insurance from that refund every year. So when you're planning on it, um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit scary. And again, we don't know yet. Like the CRA was reading their, their statement and they, the government is going to do everything in their power to make sure that they reach an agreement before next Friday. Um, but I think we have to prepare for what this means. And if people weren't already feeling the pressure, like we were to get ours in before the tax deadline, now you kind of feel like, oh shoot, I better get everything in like beginning of this week in hopes of it being processed before Friday when there's the potential for everyone to walk off. Mm-hmm. And uh, what about uh, something like RRSPs? Are you a big RRSP uh, person? 
I have very mixed feelings about RSPs. I think it depends on what your your family income situation is. My my grandparents put basically they were completely up to date in RSPs, and then they always struggled with trying to pull it out. And um, for me, I'm I'm really really big on tax free savings, and I've gone the route of doing tax-free savings account, having that filled to the brim, and then having it in investment accounts. Because you can also do, you know, GICs and and investments through your tax-free savings account. And that's been my comfort zone to this point. Right. That's the main thing I've tried to put into my kids, to instill into my kids, is use the tax-free savings account when you're young and uh, put it in real, you know, like stocks or things that are, are a little riskier but can go for the long term because the tax-free savings account when you're young is just the greatest thing. Oh, it's so great. And I've, yeah, I've got the auto payment set up for the biweekly paycheck so that it's, it's something that just, it doesn't have to be even top of mind. It just happens. And I was really lucky. I, my mother's a banker and has always been a banker. So saving money, saving for retirement has always been a number one priority. And I don't, I I know it's something that often comes up when we talk about savings and retirement, um, that there's, there's this hope parents always wish that these were things that were discussed at an early age in school and that that was a part of the curriculum because it's really tough when you talk to people who are looking 15 years down the road at retirement and you're like, okay, well, what's your saving situation? And they're like, savings? RSPs? And that, that feels a bit frightening once, once you, you get to a certain point. And at that point to do the catch up, um, it's really difficult. Yeah. I think you, you said a mouthful there. I think uh, financial literacy should be taught more than it is, especially in high schools. I think that's a huge thing. Totally. Just being able to process. It's really like when you say the the term retirement to a 16 year old, (laughs) like you're just, yes, I intend at 16. Yes, I intend to retire someday, but how you get there, there's, there's, there's no, um, there's no clear blueprint at that age of what that looks like or why you would need to think that far in advance because 50 years down the road at 16 just seems like a future you problem. Um, yeah. big time. <laughs> That's like a yeah. different person. So, uh, Kelsey, before I let you go, uh, how are you celebrating today? I, I'm hoping there's a big feast in your future. Yeah, I'm just getting the the Easter eggs ready to go, and we're going to have a bit of a scavenger hunt for my kiddo. I've got a three-year-old, nice. and uh, yeah, the the party will continue outside. It's very, very windy where I am right now. But Martin, if I can, just on the tax front, because I know that everyone wants to get more money out of their tax returns, and if I've missed you for this year, maybe for next year, I just want to share a couple of things that I just didn't know about. Um, if Great. you If you are someone who can track and keep receipts, any health expenses that are out of pocket, even if you have a prescription that's covered 50% or 75%, whatever it is, the extra amount remaining, you can claim that. And one of the biggest things that jumped out now that we have so many people with allergies, if you're diagnosed with celiac, you can claim all of your gluten-free foods that you purchase at the grocery store. But this is where tracking and keeping those receipts can feel really, really tedious. And then you have to, in order to get that refund, you need to spend over, it's about $2,100 a year on on health expenses. But that can include hospital parking if you have to go to an appointment. Like all of those things really add up over a year. And so if you're someone who tracks, that can be quite a game changer. 
Right. And use your phone because there's probably a lot of apps, but even just taking photographs of receipts is probably a good idea. It's a great point. The apps that exist now. Yeah. I just thought the celiac thing, I just feel like everyone I talk to has someone in their family yeah. that is celiac. And the uh, we talk so much about inflation and the cost of the grocery stores. And this is one sure way to be able to claw back a little bit of money um, when you're spending extra in the natural food set section of the grocery store. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. About 100,000 customers in Quebec are still without power as Hydro-Quebec works on its damaged energy grid after last week's deadly ice storm. Uh, most of the people without power are in the Montreal area, uh, but that's pretty good because more than a million people were, there, were without power at the peak of the outages caused by Wednesday's storm. It's linked to three deaths and has left uh, southern Quebec and eastern Ontario under a coat of ice. And uh, on a, on the phone right now is uh, someone who lives in Montreal, and her power just came back on last night. Uh, it's Ruby, and uh, full disclosure, Ruby's my daughter. Uh, hi, Ruby. How are you doing? Hi, Marty. <laughs> so so uh, the power finally came back on last night. So uh, what a, what kind of a relief was that? Oh, it was it was an incredible feeling. I don't think I'll ever take electricity for granted again. Right. Uh, and it was, it was off for about just about over three days. So 72 hours, three days. Well, that, that must've caused some challenges, but for someone who was raised in Vancouver, uh, you didn't have a lot of experience with ice storms. Describe for people who haven't experienced an ice storm. What was it like and what kind of uh, wrath did it leave behind? Well, during the ice storm, it wasn't uh, too bad. I was actually out for a walk when it started, and uh, it was just, like, super cold, raining, and then as soon as the rain fell to the ground, that's when it started to freeze, and it was pretty slushy at first. Afterwards, though, uh, you could tell it was really starting to get cold, and uh, the trees were covered in ice all the surfaces were covered in ice. I got into an Uber and the car door was just a sheet of ice. Um, so, yeah. Wow. So a lot of stores were closed, I guess. Yes, a lot of stores and still a lot of stores too. My roommate and I were searching for some food for Easter dinner tonight and 
a lot of grocery stores are running on generators right now. Right. And I, I heard that they were trying to, to get stores to open today. So hopefully that will be the case. Um, so did you, uh, it, 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 there was a weird thing in your building. Did you say that some of the people had power and some of the people didn't? Uh, no, all, all, uh, apartments and some of the, the commercial offices. They, they did not have power, but it was strange across the street. Um, at one point, I saw it, it turn back on, and unfortunately, it didn't hear. Yeah, so the people in Montreal, I'm guessing, are, are used to this. I mean, they've gone through some pretty serious ones, like the one in the late 90s. Um, what's the attitude like? Did you talk to some locals who are just like, ah, whatever, this is just the way it is, or, or is, are they pretty uh, stunned by this? pretty stunning but the general attitude i went out for uh a coffee the day after it initially turned off and uh people were pretty i don't know there was an air of uh confusion and a little bit of excitement but definitely everyone was feeling uh a little a little uh strange it was quite an inconvenience especially for for retail workers and for students i'm guessing as well yeah and it, it kind of brings people together too right it definitely did. I uh, luckily, my brother, who you may know, I've met him. Uh, my, my my brother lives in town as well, and I got to spend the day at his house and uh, a couple friends' houses, just kind of poaching their their Wi-Fi for a bit. <laughs> nice. That's I guess that's the number one thing. The number one concern is Wi-Fi. Uh, well, Wi-Fi and charging charging. That yeah. was something I really missed. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I'm glad you appreciate it now. And uh, Ruby, I, I just want to, uh, you know, I hope it all works out. I hope you can find some food for Easter dinner tonight. Oh, we we definitely did. We had to use a, a grocery store that was powered by a generator, but our power's back on, our oven's working. So we're going to try to roast a chicken. There's a new book being released in just over a week on April 18th. It's called Prisoner Number 1056. It's the incredible true story of Roy Ratnaval, who fled torture and imprisonment in his native Sri Lanka. He was thrown in a prison camp at the age of 17 for nothing other than being born uh, a Tamil. He saw friends die. He was tortured. But through an incredible series of events, he was released and he fled to Canada. He was 18. He was alone. He had 50 bucks in his pocket, but he persevered and is now executive vice president of CI Financial, the largest investment firm in Canada. I said it was an incredible story. And we have the man here. Roy Ratnavel is with us. Hi. Good to have you. Hello. Yeah, good. Thanks for having me and uh, happy Easter to you and everybody else who's listening. Yeah. And uh, glad to have a conversation with you on this. Yeah, and I, I probably kind of glossed over your story, but uh, it was a struggle both in Sri Lanka and a struggle here in Canada. So I'm going to give you a big question to start. Now that we're in a long weekend, lots of family dinners, very reflective time. When you think, mm -hmm. when you think about it and you sit down and you take a breath and think about where your life is taking you, what does this country, Canada, mean to you? Well, that is an excellent start for this conversation. Um, and I always say that um, we are all worthy of the life we desire, but it can only happen under the right conditions. For me, personally, Canada provided with those conditions what I call freedom, 
and choice. So I would say starting with that and, and in terms of, you know, when I came here at uh, Pearson International Airport on April 19th, um, 1988, so about 35 years ago, given my background as a prison prisoner, um, the first thing I noticed when I landed here was the uniformed officers staffing the airport security and the custom desk. Arriving from Sri Lanka, a country where my members of my Tamil community, communities are routinely abused by the country's police and army, I had learned to associate such two uniforms with terror. Right. So when I saw the two well-built Canadian police officers walking towards me, I tensed reflexively. But as we passed by the corridor, they merely looked at me and then said, good afternoon, with big smiles. It was at that moment that I decided to become a Canadian. Wow. That's that's awesome. That's great. Well, let, let's talk about the the early struggles in Sri Lanka. You're a Tamil. And the, and basically, if I'm probably oversimplifying this, but it was a civil war going on when you were a teenager, and it was basically the, the government, and was it Tamil forces who were challenging that government rule? Yeah, so just to give the listeners a bit of background on this uh, contentious war, um, so Sri Lanka was a colony of um, uh, Britain, and so when the British left in 1948, uh, they merged the two parts of the country, the north and the south. Uh, north is where predominantly the Tamil saw, the other minorities, uh, and predominantly Hindus. And the Sinhalese, or the majority, lived in the south, predominantly Buddhist. This war is not about religion, it's about culture. It's almost like the French and the and the Canadian, uh, sorry, the, the English Canadians fighting. It's almost a similar. Mm-hmm. If I were to give some context to this, so and so this war really um, sort of peaked, I guess, the, the conflict in 1983 after the race riots on July 23rd. From then on, it just went all hell broke loose, and I was unfortunately one of those uh, individuals who was in that generation that saw the whole thing unfold in front of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at the age of 17, I was rounded up, as you said in the intro, uh, just for no other reason than for being a Tamil, and I was sent to prison, and where I endured many forms of torture. And I was one of the luckiest ones uh, to be able to get out of there alive. And my father decided to then sent me to Canada at the age of 18. I came here by myself with 50 bucks in my pocket alone. And uh, that's where my story started in Canada. Right. And uh, the sad part of all this is that, was it two days after you arrive, uh, your your father was killed? That is correct. Um, so I landed here on the 19th of uh, 1988, April. And uh, two days after I landed, 35 years ago, he was killed. And my father's untimely death left me with the feeling that I have to live for two people. I thought if I did well enough in life, somehow I could make up for the life he should have had. Because my father's death made me grow fast, 
and become a fighter, I use that pain as coal for my furnace of ambition. And Canada, this great land, gave me the chance, the second lease in life. Wow, it's an, it's incredible. And uh, I, I mean, are are you bitter? Well, I was bitter um, for the probably a good part of my life earlier on because you blame everything that happened to you on others and you become resentful. And um, I think over time you realize that humanity thrives on uh, hope and optimism. And, and the world isn't all that bad uh, because when I started looking at Canada and making new friends and then I was completely uh, in awe of uh, what this country was all about because coming from a country of racial division and hate, um, when I landed here, I wasn't really shocked by the snow <laughs> or by the lung-numbing cold in the winter. What balled me over was the kindness of Canadians. And um, it is, to me, a, a country that uh, anything like that I've seen or, or lived in or visited. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was from a far away from Sri Lanka. You know, when I came here, English was not my uh, first language, but my hopes and dreams were recognizably Canadian. And I see this every day. And I think what we should all do here on this Easter Sunday to really reflect on how privileged and and um, lucky we are that we live here in this mm-hmm. country called Canada. So we were talking a bit about how you came to Canada and uh, you were struck by how friendly everybody was, but it couldn't have been that easy. You were in a tiny apartment at one point with seven roommates. Was there ever a time when you thought there's got to be an easier way than this? Well, I mean, listen, I my story isn't unique when it comes to that. I and mean, I think mm-hmm. many immigrants now before us and after us will probably go through the same evolution in Canada. Um, and But I think what the important part here is that I think only two things that people need to be guaranteed in life as a human, freedom and choice. When you have that, then it's personal responsibility. You will be rewarded for the right choices you make by society and you'll be punished for the wrong choices you make. That is the price of freedom. I knew that inherently coming from a country like Sri Lanka. So yeah, life was tough at the beginning for many reasons. I mentioned how cold it was. (laughs) I think you said lung numbing cold. Cold, yeah. It was, uh, you know, I grew up in the tropics. I'm so used to mid thirties and to see even zero, which would be a short sweater for me now. but, you know, at the time I was tough and I was alone. I didn't have a lot of support. I had an uncle here who was very kind, but he was also new, uh, new to the country. So I had to start spending for myself. Um, and so I guess in that respect, it was tough and really understanding the nuance of a new culture. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I sort of spoke English, but not really fluently. So I really had to learn all that. Um, and then really understanding how Canadian, Canadian function, a Canadian society function to really assimilate into the mainstream coming from a country where I had no other opportunity ever before. So those things were challenges, but they are 
challenges uh, in the sense of it's not unique to me and every single person who came here had to go through that. But other than that, you know, there were plenty of opportunities for me to get jobs. And I had three jobs. Um, you know, I would work in a factory during the daytime and then work clean buildings at night and then work as a security guard in the weekends. Uh, meanwhile, trying to complete my high school uh, at night. So it was a packed schedule. Um, but you know what? Um, there is a dignity in hard work. And uh, and I think when you have fairness and a somewhat level playing field, I'm not saying that Canada is perfect, no country is, but it's far better than what's out there outside of our borders. Right. And we can, all, we can always make this country better than how we have found it. We should all strive for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, um, I would say, you know, my belief is that um, the resistance makes people grow. Um, and I do believe that humans do better in adversity than in luxury. Right. And having that little bit of adversity at the beginning, um, it's like going to the gym, you know, resistance makes your muscles grow. You need that resistance. And I, I had that. I still have that. We all have them. And I think fighting through that is uh, it's the human condition. Right. And you talked earlier about uh, the personal freedoms that that we have in Canada that you did not have in Sri Lanka. Um, right. You know, basic rights that were denied you. And when you see what's going on in the U.S., for example, and around the world, a lot of democratic countries kind of being tested now, populations right. being divided, uh, authoritarian okay. governments, uh, you know, gaining ground. Do you see parallels with what you saw happening in Sri Lanka uh, to the Western world? Yeah, you know, that's a very important question and it's something I tackle at the very end of the book because the book isn't just about immigrant boy came to Canada and made a living and all that stuff. And that, those kind of stories are many in Canada and as they should be. But what's the third act here? What am I trying to tell the, the audience out there, the readers out there? And I'm saying this, it is far easier to denounce freedom than to attain it. And you need to talk to people like ourselves who acquired freedom that were born into it. So to me, freedom of speech is non-negotiable Western value. We all need to die on this hill. Free speech is the core to Western civilization and to identity. So I beg of everyone to really be uh, on alert for any time a personal freedom is restricted by governments or organizations, we need to speak up. That is the only uh, view or, or value that is consistent with our democratic ideals. Mm-hmm. And, and freedom of the press, um, the, the media is attacked a lot. And I'm guessing in Sri Lanka, the media acts a little differently. Yeah, and I say this and not even jokingly in Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka guaranteed freedom of speech, but never guaranteed freedom of, 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 of never guaranteed freedom after speech. Um, and I think that we need to be on alert for press freedom uh, in this country, in every country in the world, especially um, Western civilization. And, and as much as some people may not agree with my statement on this, and I think that Western civilization is the most freest, the fairest society ever created by humans. 
And and I'm saying this as someone who lived on the other side of the planet where I experienced uh, such um, oppression and bigotry of uh, epic proportion. And it still happens around the globe. And I think that's why we should cherish what we have and protect it. It's our, it's our duty to do that as Canadians. Right. So when did you decide to, to write this book? When you were in your tiny apartment with seven roommates, did you ever think, this, this would make a good book? Or, or was it much later than that? Well, yeah, much later than that. Um, I, in 19, so I came here in, uh, to Toronto in 1988. In 98, I moved west to Vancouver in uh, search of better opportunities in the financial services industry with the same company, obviously. And as I start traveling across Western Canada, I have been to, you name me, a small town in Western Canada, I've been in it. And it gave me a unique view to see Canada. Um, you know, I've been to Lethbridge, Alberta, Medicine Hat, you know, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Fort St. John, BC, or Fort Nelson, BC, Port Hope, you name it. I've been to every single town and I had bird's eye view into really talking to Canadians from many backgrounds and in, in urban cities, rural areas. And I realized that as I start talking to them, there's one fundamental uh, characteristics that binds us together. It's the, the common thing we have as humans. And I think sometimes it is so easy to pay attention to the past uh, differences than present bonds. And so around in my 30s, perhaps around 35 or 36, I knew I would one day write a book, a book about being terrorized as a young boy who experienced a brutal civil war in Sri Lanka and then transformed in Canada in his late teens and early 20s. Right. I wanted to tell the world a, this survival story, a camel boy's survival story. But I also wanted this book to give a voice to a generation of Tamil immigrants who are coming of age now in Canada and other Western nations to tell their untold stories of them or their parents leaving Sri Lanka and the experience prior to arriving on friendly shores to build a better future. And really, at the end, uh, this book is a, a, a homage to Canada yeah. really, at the end of the day. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 